Askell Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Hello, welcome to the latest Askell Leadership Podcast, a number of conversations for you, which starts with Professor Richard Wilkinson, co-author of a book that's uh, affected lots of us, I think, The Spirit Level, talking about um, equality in social life and some of the implications of that in education. Then we talked to Sophie Weston, Preston Manor School, to John Blake of the ARC Group, talking about the curriculum. Julia Harnden, our funding specialist, talks about some of the numbers which are going to be in the news during the election campaign. And we finished with an extraordinary visit I had last week to a FE college in Scunthorpe. And the leaders there, Anne Tyrrell and Mick Lochran, talk about some of the work they've done and the benefits of working in collaboration with another college over in Doncaster. Hope you enjoy it. <laughs> Richard Wilkinson. I'm Emeritus Professor of Social Epidemiology. Um, I was at the University of Nottingham Medical School, but now at uh, York and uh, University College London. And just explain to us what social epidemiology is. Epidemiology is the subject which looks at diseases in populations. And so, for instance, it's epidemiologists who notice that um, uh, some working with some chemical leads more people to get cancer or something like that. They're big statistical studies uh, looking at um, effects of um, different exposures on health. Um, social epidemiologists, instead of um, looking at medical factors and drug trials and so on, look at the way social and economic life affects health. Uh, and most of them have backgrounds in the social sciences rather than medicine. And it's 10 years, isn't it, since The Spirit Level, a, a book many of us know and which had a big effect on us. Yes. And your starting point was essentially to do with income inequality, if I, if I recall, isn't it? Can you just tell us what, why is income inequality so important? Uh, it, income inequality is important because it makes uh, all the hierarchical relationships, uh, class and status, more powerful. Uh, it increases the social divisions and you see community life weakening, um, people trusting each other less, more violence and so on, in more unequal societies. They are less, less cohesive. And, and, you, and you, you showed a number of graphs that showed that in a number of different areas, so whether it's prison population, uh, whether it's literacy and numeracy levels, the more unequal the society becomes, the more the gap is and the more it then leaves a huge tale of, of people left behind. Is that, is that essentially, am I caricaturing it by saying it like that? Uh, yes. <laughs> um, sorry, yeah. that is what happens. Um, but um, and the effect isn't just on people at the bottom. The biggest effects of inequality are on the people at the bottom, uh, but almost the whole population. Um, 90 or 95 percent of the population do less well in a more unequal society, less well in terms of, of health and educational performance and, and many other outcomes. And does that mean then that this whole notion which we've had for, for, for a number of years about social mobility, that if you give uh, people, dis particularly people in disadvantaged circumstances, the same kinds of opportunities as, as others might have, that will somehow drag them up. Does it undermine that notion if this essentially is affecting everybody? I, I think that it's uh, policies to increase social mobility without uh, reducing the, the social hierarchy, the income inequality, are much, much more difficult. Um, 
it's a it's constantly an uphill struggle if you're living in an unequal society because the obstacles uh, put in people's way um, are, if you like, bigger, more powerful. And I sometimes... No, I won't go into that. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> do an edit there. Um, so, so does that mean if, if ultimately we want to have a, a more uh, equal society, you have to do something about the poverty, which, which mars the lower end, but also you have to do something through tax or whatever it might be about the top end. So you're basically levelling from the bottom up and the top down. That's essentially it. Yes, I think so. Um, and you have to redistribute through taxes and benefits. Our top tax rates are historically, in terms of most of the 20th century, rather low now. Um, uh, but we also have to uh, reduce the differences in pre-tax incomes, uh, the way you know the CEOs' incomes and in larger companies took off. Um, basically, in the first decade of the of, of the 21st century. Uh, there's a study, for instance, which looks at something like the biggest three or four hundred American companies. And up until sometime in the early 1980s, the differential between the CEO in those companies and the average production worker, uh, the CEO has got 30 or 40 times as much. But by the first decade of this century, um, the gap was 10 times as big they were getting three or four hundred times as much. Uh, so within a workplace, you find those differentials widening dramatically, and it's not good for the performance of uh, a business. And the kind of mechanisms which suppress that are the kind of things they might do in Germany, for example, of having greater worker representation on boards, for example. Yes. If you look at the whole of the 20th century, Income inequality is high in the 1920s. It comes tumbling down in most developed countries from sometime in the 1930s and goes on down until the late 1970s. And then from about 1980 onwards, it reverses and you get huge rises in inequality. If you look at the proportion of the population in trade unions, you find exactly the opposite. And it looks like the mirror image of what happens to inequality. I don't think that's simply that uh, unions make a big difference to uh, members' incomes. I think that it's uh, a marker of the strength of the whole uh, labour movement, the countervailing ideology, the, the view that there's another way in which our societies can work, uh, a way that's perhaps qualitatively better for all of us. Uh, as that idea strengthened in the 1930s, Inequality comes down, uh, and when it uh, finally disappears um, in the early 80s, uh, you find inequality takes off again. Two final questions for you. Your latest book is, I think, The Inner Self. The Inner Level. The Inner Level. Your latest book is The Inner Level, which essentially starts to look at the effect of inequality and its link with mental health issues, self-esteem, and so on, isn't it? Yes, it looks at the... um, at the psychological effects of inequality because, you see, what inequality is doing at bottom is telling us that some people are worth much more than others. Uh, And it's quite clear that we increasingly judge each other and so worry about how we are judged more by status. 
Um, so what you see in the data is more inequality undermines that uh, sense of self-worth, self-esteem and so on. You become more troubled about your self-worth uh, and how others judge you. Mm. Final question. You, you showed an interesting survey which was essentially talking to people who were in poverty in all kinds of different contexts and you made the point that poverty in India might look different from poverty in I don't know Finland let's say uh, but nevertheless the experience of poverty is similar elsewhere and you just read out what I thought was an incredibly poignant account of that will you just give us the flavour of what it was you you've said well this is a big study where they interviewed people in poverty in in both rich and poor countries and the experience of poverty, despite material differences being so en enormous, I mean, in, a, in Norway, the poor will live in a three-bedroom house and have a flat-screen television. In, in India, uh, the poor probably live without water and sewage and, and so on, in awful conditions. But what people, how people experienced poverty was as a sense of failure, of shaming, of being looked down on, um, which not only affected how they felt other people saw them, um, uh, but also uh, their view of themselves. They uh, talked about self-loathing uh, and how we, even within families, women despised their men folk, children despised their parents and so on, for being poor. Um, you think less of yourself your idea of yourself is involved in all this uh, this stuff too, um, and and they talked about how um, uh, even children couldn't escape this shaming. For um, school was an engine of social grading, a place of humiliation uh, for those without the possessions that guaranteed social acceptance. So you know everyone is feeling. Uh, the effects of being seen as being at the bottom. Mm. Uh, it's that that we're really sensitive to. And whereas we might have thought that school was a kind of escape from that, actually what you're saying there is it, it doesn't, it kind of reinforces a sense of that. Yes, I've, I've actually talked to young men who, um, who won't go down, walk down the street their school was in because the sense of uh, what school taught to them was that they were um, failures um, uh, and and the sort of revulsion of that experience is so great they don't like to even go near the um, their school, old school. Professor Richard Wilkinson, thank you. My name is John Blake and I am the Curriculum Research and Design Lead for Art Curriculum Partnerships and the Director and Strategy and Policy at Now Teach. And what does that mean you actually do then at ARC, if I might ask? So ARC has a number of established programmes in curriculum, uh, English Mastery, Maths Mastery and ARC Music, uh, and we're now developing a number of pilot programmes in uh, science, in geography and in primary. Uh, and my role is to help them come together to share their experience, their, um, their ideas about knowledge and, and to help build sort of coherent curriculums uh, both within those programmes and also draw out the learning from those programmes so that we can use it in other areas in our schools um, as well as likewise being the schools and drawing out their experiences of curriculum and supporting them. And you've just spoken to leaders uh, from colleges and schools, from independent state schools, di different roles there. 
here at Ascot Council and you started with uh, a sentence that may have surprised some people which is essentially we are at a kind of golden age it might not be that phrase but a kind of golden age in terms of the freedom we have to think about curriculum something like that just just articulate that for me yeah so I can I imagine it doesn't always feel that way for uh, for school leaders at the moment but actually I think if you look at the kind of conversations we're having about curriculum in this country and the richness of them the depth and breadth of them um, from you know newly qualified teachers all the way up to, to trust leaders um, and their real focus on what it is that we want young people to know and understand to go out into the world I think that's a really vibrant and exciting discussion I think that's that really isn't matched anywhere else um, and I think it provides us with an enormous opportunity um, but it's also an enormous responsibility and I think we need to be um, engaged in a really open discourse with one another to ensure that we're we're making the best of that of the, that opportunity and and sharing that responsibility equitably. And do you find yourself surprised by how far, as a profession, we've kind of lost our deeper understanding of what curriculum means? You know, I, I know from what people say to me that in some schools at secondary, the year seven experience is largely a diluted form of what the qualification five years hence is going to do. So we've, we've kind of blurred the notion of qualifications and curriculum. Is, is that what it feels like from your point of view? So I think, I think it's, it's, it's often easy to, to imagine there was a, a golden age in the past where curriculum was a, was a much better discussion. I suspect there were schools where that was true, but also I think the reason we ended up with things like the national curriculum and the various iterations of it or the stricter r rules on the exam boards is because that wasn't universalised. So I think, um, I think there are some areas in which we, we have perhaps lost uh, that opportunity or come um, too often to think that you know what the GCSE boards or what Ofsted says defines what good education is. Um, but equally, that has helped us forge a common sense of a common idea of how we would have that conversation. So I think, um, I think certainly there are there are real areas where we need to improve as a system. Um, but I also think we need to take seriously the idea that those things are not about individual teacher failure. Um, they are about. Um, not not joining up our initial teacher education, our continuous professional development and our accountability structures and that I think that is a real prospect at the moment, that's a real option on the table and that we have to work together to ensure that is the case so that teachers don't feel they have to give a watered down version of GCSE in year seven because they understand where they're going to take those young people over those five years or over the whole time in their education and um, and, and they, can, they can have that discussion more freely, but equally that they've the time, the training and the resource to have that discussion in a way that is rich and meaningful. Okay, I want to come back to professional development and accountability in just a second. Let's just do one quick point first, because too often, particularly perhaps on Twitter, when people talk about knowledge, we immediately get into this terrible polarised debate about knowledge versus skills. And what was interesting about listening to you today, with, and I'm oversimplifying it, right, is you talked about Michael Young's three versions of the future. The, the version one of the future is essentially backward-looking, version two is essentially vocational, and version three is essentially what is powerful knowledge and who decides what that knowledge is. That's my probably a caricature, but that's essentially what you were saying. That notion of who decides it, one of the things that is a big theme of yours is how do we create a kind of professional community who are rooted in what does our subject mean? You take disciplinary knowledge, how do we create that? Would you just talk through that? Because that's about connecting people across institutions in order that what they're doing is understanding better and delivering better for young people. So I think... Um I think where where the challenge in the last 
uh, 10 years has come and has been absolutely right is that sometimes we haven't taken our subjects as seriously as we should do and we haven't um, trained and done the thought about exactly what our subject should be and how they should be there. Um, but equally, that's not something any one of us can do on our own. In some subjects, maths and science, perhaps it's a, it's a bit more obvious what it should be, and in history and English less so. But even so, all of these things have been created somewhere. You know, the, the knowledge from which they're derived has been discovered somewhere. And we need to have genuine conversations across... Um, across institutions about now what do young people need to know and when do they need to know it what are the important ideas what's more important and again you know time is not infinite so part of this is about prioritization what are the most important ideas and i would suggest that what young's work does really well is say to us that there is the the things that we call disciplines these this this social manufacture of knowledge what makes them powerful is they allow us to evaluate and predict a fundamental reality and that we can use that idea to prioritise what it is we want young people to know so that they can be the authors of their own lives. They can have as much that we've given them, not validated just because that's what we learned in the past, but because this is the really powerful stuff that we think now we might be wrong. That's absolutely, that's, that's possible. You know, that whole point of a discipline is that it emerges and changes and there is corrections to it, but that we are doing the best we can now, but that we're also open to how we want to improve in the future. And I think that... That sense of um, standing on the shoulders of those who've gone before us, being humble um, before our disciplines that we, we might not always be right, but then that doesn't mean the end of the world, but also that we can't just arbitrarily change things and that we have a responsibility each to another as teachers to ensure that the young people have the knowledge that we thought they should have at that stage and that we're passing on young people who have that knowledge so that our successes in their teaching can, can build further on, on what they know. Um, so let's let's just take that into professional development because I think one of the uh, weaknesses perhaps of the teaching profession is that professional development is something that happens on the margins it happens at the end of the day after I've taught five lessons it happens at the start or end of term when I've got a training day it isn't kind of rooted into the routine work that I'm doing to learn from you who's been teaching longer than me what kind of good practice have you seen in terms of starting to bed some of what we've been talking about in, in, into people's professional development so I think the, the point you make about ensuring that this is absolutely something that's happening all the time that um, uh, all of the work we do uh, with each other is considered to be developmental um, uh, and I think a, a lot of that is coming through in, in certain places and seems and seems very strong um, but I think it's also about repurposing some of that time so it's not just oh this is a tedious thing at the end of the day actually that these are rich and exciting conversations that treat us each teacher's as sort of as intellectual agents in our own right that we you know we we have degrees in our subjects. We know things, we do, but we don't know everything. And we have an opportunity to really, I don't, I don't geek out in in our subjects and thinking about how they how they are. And I think taking that richness and then using that richness of subject to say it's not just about you know having fun talking about a thing that you have to be interested in. To think, well, how would you how would you help young people understand this? What do they need to grasp about that? And doing that and moving away from. You know, an endless churn of this chance data is here and it's not there. Now, of course, GCSE outcomes and A-level outcomes and key stage outcomes are important to schools, and, and certainly the, the qualifications are important to young people. So there always needs to be some part of that. I don't think it's wrong. I don't think it's wrong we have an accountable system. But it shouldn't be one that's only driven by um, that, that sort of reductive sense. It's got to be one that allows um, teachers, teachers who came to this profession, to do the two things they want to do, which is work really well with young people so that they know more when they leave than when they started 
and think a lot about the things that they enjoyed enough to think they wanted to teach them. And I think we, we can build a world in which that's what professional development becomes, but it's, it's not going to be easy and it's not going to be quick. And let's finish with that not going to be quick because we're talking kind of five weeks into a new Ofsted framework and inevitably with, with leaders of schools in the state sector in particular, they're fixated on the fact that now Ofsted is talking about the substance of education. What does that mean? What kind of questions are they going to be asked? And as somebody said to you in there, it's going to take time for us to bed this in. And what you were essentially saying, your subtext was, that may well be true, probably is true, we need to hold our nerve. Just kind of explore that for me. So I think this will take time, but I think it's also, and, and I think that's, that's a legitimate response to the accountability metrics in the system, saying that you, you, if you expect to see all of this at once, that's not going to happen. And I, and I think there is, there is evidence that Ofsted in particular is taking that seriously, so I think that's very good. Um, but it's also uh, about saying some of these challenges are right. We, the system, uh, you know, we were right to be challenged as a profession, and it's going to take time to get that right, but that we understand that's where we're going, that we know that's the journey we're on, and we are going to go on that journey. And I think trying to avoid that sense... What I really fear happening is that um, this moment, this opportunity is lost because people just think, you know, either this isn't working for me and I don't like it or I can't do this right now. And, and ironically, we become like those children we most need to help who are the ones who just think, I can't do it, I'm just not going to do it. Yeah, I can't do it, miss, I don't understand. You know, we, we have, to, we have to, to model as a profession the kind of learners that we want to teach. And I think we can do that. But again, we, we also need institutions like yours to take that message to, to, to the accountability metrics in the system and say, you know, it is going to take time. And if this is, if this is done aggressively um, or if it's done in a way that is going to really harm people's careers where it's totally unwarranted, then, then we're not going to be able to take advantage of that. And I think it's that balance that's really important. John Blake, thank you. Hi, my name's Sophie Welsh and I'm Associate Head Teacher at Preston Manor School in Wembley. And tell us a little bit about that school and tell us in particular about the clientele, that is the young people, and then tell us about the, uh, the makeup of your leadership team. Um, so we're an all-through school um, and we're about 2,000 students, um, very diverse, looking at about 30% PPG at the moment. Uh, we very much represent the community, um, which means we are a classic sort of inner-city London school. Um, we, I've been at the school for four years now, I'm going into my fourth year. Um, we very much sort of prioritise inclusivity. We want to make sure that we are representative. Um, we're very proud of um, the inclusive diversity of, for example, our governing body um, and also it's something that we consider in terms of our leadership team. Um, so it's something that we prioritise in terms of our own reflections, um, looking at things, for example, like staff wellbeing, um, having open, honest conversations um, and, for example, tomorrow, in fact, um, we're hosting um, some training on unconscious bias. Um, as part of our inset, um, we've been part of a, a group with Wembley looking specifically at the underachievement of black Caribbean boys. Um, it's something that features um, predominantly in our priorities and thinking about what we need to do as a school. Um, so it's, it's something that we, we take as a leadership team. We, we are very aware of the role we play in terms of trying to be a force for equalisation, for opportunity in society and we try to represent that in our school. And that matters, what, particularly in your school, in your area, or, or are we saying actually irrespective of what your 
context is this is going to matter? Irrespective of your context, I think for us it's probably more pressing. Um, I think for us it's it's probably something that we are we are very aware of and faced with every day, but it's something that needs to happen in every single school. Um, and I, I'm very aware, sort of, with, with my background, and I don't mind saying this at all, that sort of what I, I was only really aware of my white privilege when I sort of really moved to London and started working in really quite diverse schools. And then I look back at previous schools that I'd worked in and I realised that what I was learning here was just as relevant for there. Um, but actually what I was, what, what I had the opportunity when I moved to London was there, there was more dialogue about it, there was more open discussion about it. Um, and I was made aware of things that I, I, I'd been doing that maybe had a ripple effect around me that I didn't even realise. And I remember one colleague saying, um, we were talking about whether or not to have, I was, I was getting married, and whether or not to have a, a photo of your wedding on your desk. And she said, you do realise that by doing that, you're making a statement. And I said, well, well what statement? And she said, well, it, you know, if I was to do that, the person I'd be marrying would be a woman. Do you think I can have that on my desk? And I, it got me thinking. And I thought, well, actually, you should. Of course you should. I would have no issue with that. But do you feel you can? And this was something that I was just sat there thinking, I want to put a picture of my wedding day on my desk. And it didn't even consider all the other factors that linked to that. And I think that was just one example of how my eyes were opened. Um, and it's why it's something I think that's, that's so important across every school, that we're all having these conversations, that we're all talking about it that helps to make it real on the agenda um, and gradually that's how you, you shift society that's how things change and just talk about your your journey in the latter part of uh, being a woman in senior leadership because 18 months ago something happened uh, which <laughs> yes. uh, which for, for logistical reasons but perhaps even more for emotional reasons meant you have had to adapt to the way you do things so. absolutely so my, my, my daughter was born 18 months ago and um, so I shared the leave with my husband so I, I took the lion's share, but he, we, we split it between us. I very early on realised that I, I, I got a lot from my, my job. I think it's a very important job uh, for, for society and it's something I wanted to contribute to. But I loved my daughter. I wanted to be the leader I wanted to be. I wanted to be the mother I wanted to be. And I wanted to be the woman I wanted to be. And so I sort of had to do a stop and a reflection. Um, everyone has to make their own choices. I decided part-time was not the route for me. Um, I was very lucky that I've got a network to support me. Um, but I did realise I had to make some changes. Um, and so the advice I'd been given through coaching and mentoring from some very wise women um, who, who gave me time and energy and support as I made this transition um, was be open and honest so I am open and honest with the community that there are certain days I have to be leaving the school site um, by 4.50 because I am collecting my daughter from nursery because I want to um, be able to have that contact with her in the nursery setting I want to spend time with her and I realise that emotionally if I don't do that I'm, I'm missing out on a huge part of who I am and I realise that I'm not the only woman in that position and actually one thing that a colleague said to me was the unintended consequence almost of that was the, 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 the ripple effect elsewhere that people can see you can be a senior leader, you can have a young child, you can have a family, you can advocate work-life balance and you can still do what you want to do and still lead a school. Um, and I didn't realise until she'd said that to me, I thought actually people are watching me and this is 
this is this is maybe if that encourages someone else to think that I don't have to wait necessarily or, or I want to be able to look at how I can make make this work for me and the key I felt was whatever works for you you've got to look and find what the right balance is for you um, it's really interesting hearing you say that because dr. Karen edge who is a kind of international expert in terms of um, teacher retention she says, you know, as leaders, it's no good for you to talk about the well-being of staff. It's no, it's no good just talking about how you're going to make their jobs more flexible. You have to model what that means in practice. So that idea of saying at the beginning of the week, I will be going home at a certain time because I've got a family and that's important to me and it should be to you as well. What you're saying is that ripples out across the, across it, the staff. It does. It ripples out. And I think people, you, you know, it's, it's do as I do. And, you know, if people see you, and I, I've said to people that I live manage that there may be times that they get maybe an email a little bit later than I'd like because actually I'm, I'm carving out three hours. That's my time with my daughter. And if it's urgent, you know, I'm on the phone if you need me. But that I'm not apologising, if you like, for, for not being there. That this is a priority for me. This makes me a better leader. Um, and that helps me do my, my job to the best of my ability. But well-being is precisely that. Um, in January inset for us, we always have a chunk of time in the afternoon for well-being time. So whether that's um, using time for some, some for meditation, yoga, we had sound therapy last year, we're trying to encourage people to give them an experience to actually then create that habit to then make it sustainable because the reality is what we do is a crucially important job but it's exhausting and it, it can take so much that actually in terms of retention and recruitment crisis that we're in we need to support and give every opportunity we can for the, the teachers and leaders that we're working with and the way to do that is to try and make the system and the structures work and make them sustainable finally Sophie this um Agenda is a really important one for Askell, and we're trying to do it with a sense of humility. I mean, we're all finding our way through, and when, when you talk about white privilege, no one understands that more than I do, I suppose. Um, so the question for us is, how do we translate good intentions into things which are going to make a real difference? What, what kind of things are you hoping might come out of the work we're doing? Um, I think we need to um, find, for want of a better phrase, easy wins. I think there can be small things that make a big difference. I think just discussing it, I think just having it as an agenda. Um, I think things like talking about unconscious bias, um, that it's something that the sort of the psychology behind it, um, I think to, being able to sort of maybe do some action research, talk to people. Um, so thinking about that example of the wedding photo, that, that sm a small thing that actually could have a, such a big ripple effect and talking to students what makes what makes it, it different for them and I remember when I left um, my previous school and a, a sixth former who I didn't know very well came up to me and said you've no idea the power you have when you speak in front of us we see a strong woman and we are impressed by that and I again I had no I'd never seen it in that way I was just a teacher I was a school leader and actually you can't be what you don't see and I think in this sort of development and this change, us having this conversation is core. Cool. And if that means seeing people um, who, who are openly gay um, and talking about that, if that seems, means, means seeing people um, from, from BAME backgrounds, if that means seeing working mothers and fathers who are splitting the childcare and, and still running schools and doing those leadership roles, that's how you'll make the change. It's that notion of bringing yourself to school, not, not, not having to pretend you're somebody else in a sense, isn't it? Exactly. It's not apologising for being a mother. 
Absolutely. it's not apologising for leaving to go to the theatre because you want to because that's great for your own mental health and well-being it's acknowledging that we are school leaders and we give a huge amount of ourselves but we don't give everything uh, we are people we are women we are men we are mothers we are fathers we are leaders we are teachers um, and we shouldn't apologise for that we should celebrate it Sophie Welsh thank you um, so I'm Julia Harnden I'm Askell's funding specialist this time last year, Julia, um, I guess what we were saying at our regional information conferences is uh, we understand how tight things are, to use Damien Hines' phrase, in terms of funding, and we were just about to do our work talking about the true cost of education, and that was described as being a game-changer. Here we are now uh, with money having been put into the system. So are we kind of hanging out the bunting because it's enough money? Um, well, we are hanging out the bunting to acknowledge that there has been a significant increase in investment. However, it isn't enough. So I think it's right that we acknowledge it. There will be an additional £7.1 in the school's pot um, in three years' time. But our work with the true co on the true cost of education and more collaboratively with the School Cuts Coalition has told us that um, we haven't got enough money yet. So we need to continue to campaign. And what we were hearing in the run-up to the leadership election uh, was that there was going to be a levelling up and that we were going to see an amount for primary and an amount for secondary. Could you just kind of talk us through what was being promised and what we think the effect of that is going to be for schools? Yes, yeah, so levelling up was um, a headline really for government in this announcement. So what they're talking about is the minimum per pupil level that each school should uh, receive um, and the levels are 3750 for primary schools and £5,000 per pupil for secondary schools. And the policy intention was to address um, the geographical variance that exists across the country. So that's a noble intention. In practice, the, the minimum per pupil level levelling up will mean that schools that have little or no additionality, so factors for deprivation, students that um, attract deprivation funding, for example, those schools that don't have those characteristics are likely to receive more of this money. So in summary, really, challenge, schools in challenging areas will not access this money in the same way that schools in less Which would seem areas. to be a terrible headline. If, if it's framed like that, wouldn't it, for a yes. government? Because th those schools which are already disadvantaged are the ones who uh, are least likely to receive the additional funding. That's right. And what's, what's the scale of that? Again, working with the School Cuts Coalition, am I right in saying that there are two things they're, they're uh, suggesting? One is that a third of schools in April and September, depending if they're a school or an academy, uh, will actually have to continue to make cuts. So we, uh, that's what I think they're saying. But secondly, aren't they saying that four-fifths of school, irrespective of this, are being taken back to 2015 levels rather than the kind of levels that we might think were appropriate now? Have I got that right? Well, I think what they're saying is that, yeah, so four out of five schools will still uh, be working with real terms cuts based on their 2015 income. But I think we have to be really clear when we're saying that is that we are taking what we would say is a realistic account of uh, how costs in schools increase. And we know that school costs have tended to increase at a pace faster than the rate of inflation. So when we're saying four out of five schools are still in a real terms cut situation, 
that's uh, the way that we have calculated that figure. Uh, Anne Tyrrell, I'm Chief Executive of the DN Colleges Group. And tell us what that is. Uh, DN Colleges Group merged in uh, November 2017, and that's a merger of North Lindsay College in North Lincolnshire and Doncaster College. Yeah, and we're here at North Lindsay College. Tell us a little bit about that, because you, you've been here seven years, something like that? Uh, came to the college in 2012 as principal. Um, it's a college at the heart of the community, as many, in fact, all colleges are. Uh, when I first came here, um, we were a college of... Uh, 16 million and we've grown to over 22 million before we merged so a period of real growth particularly in higher education and apprenticeships. And tell us a little bit about the the merger and, and uh, some of the benefits of that. Uh, we've always said with the merger we merged it was an amicable merger we chose to merge and we always said that one of the most important things that we needed to do in the merger was to maintain the distinctiveness of the individual colleges and that's because colleges are linchpins in the community right. so for students coming to North Lindsay or for students coming to Doncaster it's really important that it's their college um, and is always their college. Um, but geographically, it really worked for us to work together. Uh, there are many, many developments from Doncaster across the East West Corridor into the Humber, where uh, there are employment opportunities and opportunities for the, for the college to work with employers. And that's been part of the strength and part of the growth that we've had as well. And um, finally, Anne, just uh, earlier this year, beginning of, of term, you unexpectedly had an Ofsted monitoring <laughs> visit. So we're, we're into the new framework there. And certainly the way you were describing that to me, that gave an opportunity to get back to talking about the substance of education. So just and as someone who yourself has trained as an Ofsted yeah. inspector, just give a, a, a quick sense of the experience. Yeah, I think it was a surprise when we when we got the call because it was very, very early on in the term. Um, we do like the new framework because it is about education and it is about how students learn and how they develop skills and it is about you know what they what they learn from us and able to go on to their their next step so there's that real focus on education um, we've developed a curriculum blueprint um, in the previous academic year um, which actually fits really well with the new framework as well um, so we felt prepared for it in, in that sense um, but yes the experience is very much it does focus on students and it does focus on the curriculum yeah. Thank you very much now um, you, will you just introduce yourself Mick <laughs> Mick Lachlan I'm principal at North Lindsay College and you've been here the same uh, amount of time as Anne. Yes, you were vice-principal. I was. I started just slightly before on in uh, June 2012. And she was just talking about this uh, curriculum blueprint. Um, and what struck me about that is that you've, across the whole college, with every different area, gone back to the principles of what is it that we're trying to teach as a starting point and done interesting things not just around the, the subject content but also employability. Do you want to just give me a sense of that? Yeah. I think the, the blueprint gives an opportunity when we merged with uh, Doncaster and North Lindsay women to actually work together on something that was a new um, approach to the curriculum across the group, not a North Lindsay approach, not a, a Doncaster College approach. Um, and key to that was um, driven by employers that we engaged in that process. And what they were telling us was, although qualifications were important, skills were important, actually what they really wanted was employability skills, uh, teamwork, 
problem solving, communication, and these are the things that they really um, thought actually made uh, our students future-proof and more employable in the future. So we've really focused on that in the, in the blueprint. And that kind of shows up as we walk around, because we're seeing that um, some, some slightly unexpected uh, dimensions of student work are there visibly on display alongside the work that they're doing. Could you, you, you can probably explain that better than I can. Yeah. So we, we've taken an approach where... Um, you know, the direction is from the blueprint that we want to really engage our students in uh, developing their um, employability skills um, in any way they can, wherever, wherever they can develop and we can all develop those. Um, but by giving that direction, we actually left the autonomy to the areas of how they're actually going to achieve that. Um, and so different areas have approached it in completely different ways. Um, and as we discussed earlier, construction have got incredible relationships with the Youth Hostel Association. They've got some real valuable work from doing out and doing volunteering work. Um, the fabrication and welding of, um, of manufactured garden ornaments, um, which are incredible and really motivate them in, in the design, but actually they then um, sold those for charity and, and, uh, and have had to work together in so many different ways and really develop that teamwork and really being creative as well, which is a key skill we feel going forward about um, being creative and how they do things. So we don't try and tell them how to do it, we just give them the idea and the direction and let them try and come up with the ideas. And just explain to me finally, that, so that those young people who are, ex who are um, studying um, construction are doing something with the Youth Hostel Association. I mean, how, how, how does that work? Uh, we, we started, we were looking for um, work placements for our construction students and it's quite difficult because a lot of the market is um, SMEs and um, although health and safety isn't an issue, it can be perceived as a barrier to get them into placements. So we started on a pilot um, work with the Youth Hostel Association, um, volunteering and, and going and building um, uh, dry stone walls and that sort of thing and actually putting something back into the community. That's grown extensively and I think we uh, we now provide over 20%, nearly 25% of the uh, volunteering nationally for the Youth Hostel Association. Uh, they came in over the summer and were, you know, wanted to, to really thank us and, and actually we didn't realise how much work we were putting into that and the students get so much back from it and, and it really gives them a, an opportunity to reflect on what they really want to do and, and sort of change their career um, ambitions after that volunteering. Well, Anne and Mick, just to say thank you. Very inspiring. Yeah. Lots we haven't mentioned there. We haven't yeah. talked about, uh, for example, the partnership work, the higher education yeah. work, but very inspiring. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. The Ascot Leadership Podcast with Jeff Barton. Thank you.